Good afternoon, Hallows Church. It's good to be with you. My name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to grab them and turn them open to Acts chapter 5, to the passage that was so well read for us. And as you were finding your way to Acts chapter 5, let me issue a particular challenge. Uh, It's one that I want to give you tonight, but it's also one that I hope will carry over into every time we open up our Bibles to study the scriptures together and to read them together like this. That is, as you engage the scriptures, seeking to hear the voice of God in its pages, to discover the glory and the beauty of Jesus as you read and study and respond to the Bible, understand that as you do so, I hope you are examining your own heart and not necessarily everyone else's hearts. That as you read the scriptures, you would read them and engage them and examine your life in light of, in light of them and that you wouldn't spin your wills trying to examine the scriptures in light of what everybody else is like. So as we study the scriptures tonight, I want you to examine your heart. I want you to resist the temptation to examine the heart of others. <clears throat> and the reason why I put that out there is because in Acts chapter 5, this is one of those stories where it's really easy for us to read and study and spend most of our time talking about what's wrong with everyone else. Because this passage in the story is putting before us hostility that exists outside of the church against the church. The apostles and the initial movement of the gospel in the city of Jerusalem is now being opposed. It is being uh, hostilities or railing against the apostles and their ministry and the church. And so we might read this story and spend all of our time kind of hunkered in the church talking about what's wrong with everybody outside of the church. Why does everybody hate us? Why is everybody hostile towards us? When really I think we want to read this story tonight and be very sensitive to examine our own hearts and not necessarily try to examine the heart of everyone else. When you were confronted with sin, when you were confronted with brokenness, when you were confronted with the suffering of a fallen world such as the one that we currently inhabit, when you were confronted with those realities, how does your heart respond? How does your heart respond when confronted to the, with the fallout of sin and suffering and brokenness in your own city, in our city, in the city of Seattle? If you spent many time, much time watching the news or reading the newspaper or maybe just walking down the streets of some of our neighborhoods, it, uh, the brokenness and the sin and suffering of our city is readily apparent. It seems as though various addictions and various uh, self and various various struggles are being uh, presented to us and confronting us on a daily basis. We have a rise in the number of people experiencing homelessness in our city, some of which are tied to sinful choices people are making. Others are tied to mental illnesses that are being overlooked and ignored and discarded in our city. Policies are being presented by our officials and those who are ruling over us that are reductionistic and uh, overly simplistic and that, are, that seem to be inefficient. And there's a lot of things that you can look at and interact with in our city right now and grow frustrated with. And when you see these evidences of sin and these evidences of suffering, these evidences of a broken world in our city, how does your heart respond? Is your heart hardened by them? Or is your heart being humbled by those realities? 
If we live the Christian life constantly seeking to examine the scriptures to figure out what's wrong with everyone else, our hearts are going to grow hard. But if we are examining the scriptures and studying the Bible to examine our own life, then our own heart, in light of what we're seeing, in light of what we're engaging, in light of what we're experiencing, that's when the heart is going to grow humble. And it's only the humble heart that's going to advance the gospel in this city. It's only a humble heart that's going to see the gospel take root and lives be transformed in those around us. And so when you think about the sin and the brokenness and the various forms of suffering that is present and apparent in our city, is your heart responding by, being, by becoming hard? Or is your heart responding by growing humble? And one of the ways it kind of shifts the gears between having a hard heart and a humble heart is when you see, when you see why people need Jesus, do you let that remind you of why you need Jesus? When you see sin and suffering and brokenness in the city, do you, do you only focus on their need or do you let that remind you of your need, that there's very similar things inside of you that is why you needed Jesus? There's very similar sin, similar suffering, similar brokenness that marks your life, that has characterized your life, that drives you to Jesus. And so when we see that around us, we want to consider how that can remind us of why you and I need Jesus. And we don't just need him at the moment we became a Christian, whatever time in your life that was. We need him to live the Christian life. We need Jesus to carry the gospel forward and to love a city with humility, to love people who are fallen and frail, who are broken and battered and bruised in this world. We can only go forth in love for them if humility is growing within us. There was a man by the name of Michael Shermer who was a publisher of a magazine called Skeptic, and he's the author of another publication called The Science of Good and Evil, and there was an article that came out several years ago where he wrote, I once had the opportunity to ask Thomas Keneally, author of Schindler's List, what he thought was the difference between Oscar Schindler, the one who rescued the Jews, was the hero of that story, if you're familiar with the book or the movie Schindler's List, what's the difference between him and a man by the name of Amon Goth? Now, Goth was the Nazi commander who oversaw the, the persecution and the oppression of the Jewish people, among others, and and his response, the author's response was this. He said, well, there's not much difference between those. There's not much different between, about these two men. He said, had there been no war, Mr. Schindler and Mr. Goth might have been drinking buddies and business partners, morally obtuse perhaps, but relatively harmless. What a difference a war makes, especially to the moral choices that lead to good and evil. What a difference a war makes in influencing and determining those types of choices. Then Shermer would go on. To quote a Russian novelist, he would say, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, then that would be easy, wouldn't it? They need Jesus. If they don't want Jesus, let's separate them. But he goes, he goes on, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And then he asks the question, who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Well, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, believers in the gospel, our answer to that question should be us. 
we are willing to kill pieces of our own heart. We are willing to crucify anything within us that would cause us to grow hard and calloused towards God, towards one another, towards the city in which we live. And what you find here in Acts chapter 5, there are three uh, hostilities that that Luke kind of draws our attention to when he's talking about the way the city leaders and rulers were responding to the apostles and the way hostility was railing against them. He identifies three aspects of the human condition that are kind of giving birth to that hostility. And these are three aspects and characteristics of our condition that we need to recognize when it's present And we need to be willing to crucify ourselves so that when we find them in our hearts and when we find them in our lives, we allow them, we we go to work on them with the gospel, allowing the gospel to end those hostilities ultimately by replacing them with, with a posture of humility. We want our hearts to be humble. We don't want our hearts to be hardened when we see the sin and the struggle and the suffering and the brokenness and the frustrations of life in a fallen world. So three hostilities I want to call your attention to tonight. The first one is picked up there in verse 17. It says, Then the high priest rose up, he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees. It says they were filled with, here it is, jealousy. They were filled with jealousy. What drove the Sadducees' hostility towards the apostles was jealousy. That was the the poisoned root that was bearing the fruit of hostility in this situation. Now, why were they jealous? Why were they responding in this way? Well, earlier in verse 12, we read that many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. Then you look at verse 16. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem bringing the sick and those who were, who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So the Sadducees were recognizing how crowds of people were gathering around the apostles, and, and since they were rallying around the, the apostles and listening to them and being served by them, they were no longer looking to the Sadducees and to other religious leaders for influence, for power, for for, for ministry, they were going to the apostles, and this kicked up jealousy in their hearts. Now, what's ironic about this is that the Sadducees was the one group of Jewish leaders in first century Jerusalem who didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in divine intervention. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They were trapped in a wonderless worldview. And when you have a wonderless worldview and you begin to see wonderful things, you can either respond by humbling yourself and saying, look, I I was wrong in my worldview, or you can grow hardened in your worldview and respond with hostility. Well, this is what the Sadducees are doing. They're seeing wonderful things that contradict their worldview, and rather than humbling themselves and saying, look, I was wrong about this. God is alive. God is real. God is active. He's doing things through the apostles who are talking about Jesus being the Messiah. Instead of moving in that direction, they kind of hunker down. And instead of being humble in their response, they're hardened in that response. And this hardness, this hostility was flowing out of jealousy. And when you see kind of the rhythm of this moment, you have the apostles God is performing miracles through them. Signs and wonders were being done by them. The sick were being healed. Lives are being changed. Great things were happening, but the Sadducees couldn't celebrate it. The Sadducees couldn't rejoice in what was happening because they were trapped again in a wonderless worldview, and they had a heart that was marked by, by the hostility of envy or the hostility of jealousy. And so they begin to respond to the apostles in this moment the same way the religious leaders responded to Jesus just before he was crucified. In John chapter 11, there's a moment where 
Jesus performs a miracle. He resurrects his friend Lazarus from the dead. And immediately after that, the religious leaders uh, don't respond by saying, wow, this is awesome. Let's rejoice in what God has done. Let's look to Jesus as the Messiah because obviously there's something different about him. Otherwise, this wouldn't happen. Instead of responding that way, they kind of harden themselves against Jesus. And listen to why in John chapter 11. John, John chapter 11, verse 48 So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him as if that's a bad thing, right? If you're raising people from the dead, you should probably be believed in, but they didn't want that to happen. But here's the driving motivation. He says, and if everyone starts believing in Jesus, if everybody starts going to Jesus, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." The reason why they were envious of Jesus is the same reason why the Sadducees were envious of the apostles. Because Jesus and the apostles threatened their positions of power and the influence they wielded in society. If you want to know two planets that often orbit around jealousy, it's power and influence. Usually what kicks up jealousy in our hearts is when we look across the table or across the room and we see someone with more. Doesn't matter what that more is, just more of anything. More friends, more social media followers, more likes on Instagram, more money, more disciples, more whatever the case may be. We look across the room and we see people with more power and influence. Oftentimes that kicks up jealousy. And when jealousy starts to swell up in our heart, what does that do? Well, hostility is soon to follow. And our hostility may not take the form of moving across the room and punching that person in the face. It usually takes a more subtle, perhaps even a more sinister form where we start to backbite and we start to slander and we start to undermine those that we're envious of because we want to tear them down so that we can build ourselves up. Well, this is essentially what the Sadducees are doing. Power and influence is being challenged by what Jesus is doing in the apostles. And rather than humbling themselves and celebrating that, they grow hard, they grow hostile, all driven by this jealousy, all driven by this envy. And so they're going to take the apostles and they're going to throw them in prison. But my question is, who's really imprisoned in this moment? If you've ever struggled with jealousy, you've ever struggled with envy, you know that jealousy and envy is is in an in and of itself, its own type of jail cell. It is, in and of itself, its own prison. A guy by the name of Joseph Epstein once said, of all the deadly sins, of the seven deadly sins that are listed in the Bible, envy or jealousy is the one that's no fun at all, (laughs) right? You you can engage in the other six and find some degree of pleasure and some degree of, of fun with those things, at least for a little bit, but envy, it's never fun. Jealousy, there's no fun with that one at all. And so it just harms the soul when we kind of lock ourselves up in a miserable state, being envious and jealous of others for various reasons. And I love it when psychologists and counselors, they kind of catch up with the Bible and what the Bible teaches about some of these things. And that's happened to some degree where psychologists have found that envy actually decreases life satisfaction and it depresses a person's well-being. They're pointing out now how envy and jealousy is positively correlated with depression and and that it breeds a hostility that can actually make a person sick. That jealousy and envy can have negative physiological effects on a human person. Recent work suggests that envy can help explain our complicated relationship with social media. 
This complicated relationship that often leads to destructive social comparisons and we're looking at everybody else's lives and we're grieving what we don't have or what we seem to be missing out on or whatever the case may be. Epstein would go on to say that envy, like jealousy, it it makes a person look ungenerous, it makes a person look mean, and it makes a person look small-hearted. This is exactly where the Sadducees are in this moment. They are ungenerous, they are mean, they are small-hearted, and they're responsible to what God is doing through the apostles. And You know, if you've ever been with, hanging out with Christians who are confessing sins, have you ever heard anybody confess this one? Jealousy and envy is, is the one that we don't really want to confess. It's that nasty. It's the one that I think is hidden most of all the sins that we might struggle with. Because there's nothing positive about it. There's nothing good about it. There's nothing generous about it. There's nothing redemptive about envy and jealousy. So we hide that more than any other thing that we might confess. And when when jealousy and envy is marking the heart, it will, over time, give birth to various forms of hostility. And our hearts can grow hard towards God, towards those that we're envious of, and even towards the world around us. But in the story, after the apostles are arrested and, or, and put in jail, we're told in verse 19, this is kind of an ironic thing, because the Sadducees, again, didn't believe in divine intervention. They didn't believe in angels. But 19 tells us that an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during night and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. So God's intervention came in to liberate the apostles, to bring them out of the prison cell. And when people showed up to kind of survey the scene in verses 22 through 24, they found that the jail was securely locked and nobody was inside. Then verse 24 tells us that the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things and they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this, this divine intervention, this miracle of God that would set the disciples free. Now, of course, you and I would see that freedom in the gospel or freedom in Christ is a lot bigger and a lot better than just being able to go wherever you want and do whatever you want. That going wherever you want, doing whatever you want, that's not gospel freedom. Gospel freedom is being who you were created to be. Gospel freedom is having a life and a heart that is, that is free from jealousy, that is free from envy, that is free from this insidious stuff that breeds hostility within us. That's gospel freedom. And so although the apostles were temporarily in prison, what we're going to find all throughout this story is that they were the freest people in all of Jerusalem because they're responding and reacting to their circumstances not with hostility but with humility. They're not growing hardened by the sufferings that they're enduring. They are being humbled by them. And this is where you begin to see how we can end hostility in our hearts. How do you end the hostility of jealousy in your soul. Well, I think as a Christian, we have to embrace the category of God's sovereign grace in our faith. You have to understand something about the sovereign grace of God. Grace, of course, means that God treats us better than we deserve. An acronym for grace is grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That God blesses us, he enriches us, he gives towards us, not because of anything we have done or will do, but because of what Jesus has done for us. That's grace. But then to attach the word sovereign grace means that God does that however he sees fit, however he's pleased with. 
And the reason why that's important is because in this moment, the apostles are set free from prison. And this is the first of three moments when God will miraculously intervene to liberate his people from jail or some situation like that. But we know throughout the history of the church and even the apostles' own experience is that God did not always intervene in this way. There are times when God intervenes and he liberates his people from prison. But there are other times when God sees fit to leave his people there. What accounts for the difference between God's intervention like in Acts 5 and God's non-intervention when a Christian is persecuted and eventually killed for their faith? What accounts for the difference between those two is what we call sovereign grace. Because sovereign grace says that God has a plan and a purpose for every moment and every decision and every step along the path of fulfilling his will. In some moments, God intervenes and he sets us free from prison. In other moments, God, in his sovereign grace, chooses, or in his sovereignty, he chooses not to, but there's grace in both instances. And so we can hear that type of message, and one, on one hand, we can grow hardened by it and get mad at God. And really, when that happens, it's really a frustration of the fact that we can't really control God, right? We can't control him and force him to do what we think he should do in every moment, and that's just a form of pride. Or we can humble ourselves and recognize that God is a God of sovereign grace. And everything he does for his people, whether it's setting them free from prison or leaving them in prison, everything that he does for his people is ultimately best. And there are purposes, there is wisdom behind all of his activities that you and I cannot understand. But in humility, we say, God, I'm not going to be hardened by your decision in this moment. I'm going to be humble in this moment. Because you are God and I am not. Another way of, of illustrating this would be in Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus is talking about the parable of the talents. Does it ever frustrate you that Jesus gives a parable where, where you have this master giving talents to people and he gives different people different, a different amount? I mean, it kind of frustrates me sometimes. I'm like, why don't you just give everybody the same amount of everything? But that's not what the master does in the parable. He gives some people, he gives one servant five talents, he gives another servant two talents, and another servant one talent. It's not very equal. But those talents were given according to the master's pleasure, according to the master's plan, and they're given to these servants, and the servants were to take those talents and to make the most of whatever they have. So the person with five was supposed to take those talents and use them well, steward them well. The person with two was supposed to take those two, use them, steward them well. The person with one was supposed to take them, use them, steward them well, trusting that God is sovereign, that, he is, that the master is right in all of his dealings and in all of his ways. And this is what we do as well. But what envy in the heart does, envy looks over the fence and sees the person with five and starts shaking their fist at the master in reply. Humility focuses on what they have, and they make the most of the opportunities they are given in this life to serve the master. They're not bickering and moaning and growing hardened by the fact that other people seem to have different things and different opportunities than them. And the whole point of the parable is that, yes, each one of these servants are given different, a different number of talents, but they both have the same opportunity. 
They both have the same opportunity. All three of them have the same opportunity to steward these talents for the glory of the master, to use them in the service of the master. So it doesn't really matter how many a person's have, uh, how many talents a person has. What matters is whether or not we embrace the opportunity or we embrace the life that we have by the sovereign grace of God. And this is what humility does. This is what a humble heart will do. This is what the Sanhedrin is missing out on. They're seeing God bless the apostles and their ministry in a tremendous way, and they're not being humble in their, in their response. They're growing hardened in their response. The apostles are set free from prison, but later there'll be stories where God's people aren't set free from prison, and they can either be humble in that moment, or they can grow hard and start shaking their fists at the master or at the Lord. But all that to say is the way that we end hostility, the end hostility of envy and jealousy in our heart is by having a category in our relationship with God for his sovereign grace. Sovereign grace is one of the most humbling realities, not humiliating realities. It's one of the most humbling realities in all the universe. It has the potential of setting us free. So that all of a sudden we're not viewing talents, opportunities, blessings as evidence of God's more favor towards a person, but just evidence of his sovereign grace. That he has a plan and a purpose for why he's doing what he's doing in every given moment. So you have jealousy here, this jealousy that can be ended when we begin to see God is a God of sovereign grace. He does what he pleases. We're going to trust him humbly in every moment, in every situation, in every circumstance, whatever decision the Lord makes. Another example of this would be the Apostle Paul. There was an instance in his life and ministry where a messenger from Satan was sent to torment him, and it took the form of this thorn in the flesh. It's talked about in 2 Corinthians 12, and it's a hard passage to really kind of wrap our minds around because we don't really know what the thorn in the flesh is. We don't know if it was a physical ailment that he couldn't shake. We don't know if it was a literal demon that was harassing him. We don't know if it was just disgruntled church members that were messing with his ministry. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. But we do know that Paul prayed for its removal three times. He asked God, would you please take this thorn from me, only to hear the Lord deny his request. And so God in his sovereign grace told Paul, no, I'm not relieving you of this thorn. He says, instead, I want you to learn how my grace is sufficient for you. And I want you to be evidence of how I perfect my power in weakness. And so there's a sense in which Paul suffered with that thorn in the flesh for the sake of God's glory for other people. That's sovereign grace. That's understanding that wherever I am in life, whatever I'm walking through in life, the God of sovereign grace is working in and through and around me in ways that is to showcase his glory to other people. Another way of saying this is that our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We belong to Jesus. We are his and he does with us whatever he pleases. And the humble heart trusts that. The humble heart rests in that sovereign grace. The second hostility is a hostility of fear, and it's picked up in verse 25. Someone came and reported to the, to the religious leaders, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force. But here it is, because they were afraid the people might stone them. So you have fear noted here, and, and we're told that the religious leaders were actually afraid 
the people might stone them. And so what they did, they kind of brought the apostles in through a back door and they had a quiet meeting with the apostles. They didn't want anybody to hear what was going on. They kind of wanted to handle this in a private controlled setting because they were afraid the people might stone them. Now, this is ironic because um, the religious leaders were not staying true to their own convictions due to this fear. Because they were afraid that they would be stoned by the people, that they would be physically harassed by others, they took this other route. They kind of did things in the, in the dark and in a quiet room. But the apostles aren't doing that, are they? The apostles are out in public proclaiming the gospel. They're being open and honest about what they believe about reality. They are displaying their worldview for everyone to see. The Sadducees, however, are kind of shrinking back in fear. And the fear that is mentioned here is the fear We might call it the fear of man or the fear of people. Now, the fear of man or the fear of people, this can give birth to hostility in our lives in a myriad of ways. And one of the ways in which this shows up is that the fear of man, the fear of people, has a way of hindering you and I from staying true to our core convictions. The fear of man hinders us from being who Jesus has called us to be. Anytime we're elevating other people's perception of us, every time we're elevating other people's opinion of us, and that elevation causes us to shrink back and not carrying out our convictions for all to see, not being the same person in every situation and circumstance, that's the, the fruit of the fear of the fear of man. So you here have here the Sadducees who aren't holding true to their convictions in the sense that they're not bringing this conversation out into the public, they're having it out in the back, but the apostles are, they're being who they are, right? They're staying consistent from the very beginning of the story to the very end of the story. They are the same people. There's an even kill stability about them. You know you are trapped in the fear of man when you have no convictions that carry you into every situation and circumstance that you find yourself in. If you are fickle, if you waffle, If you were double-minded, chances are that's all tied to the fear of man in your life. In other words, the fear of man has a way of exposing false beliefs. You may say you believe something, but the fear of man has a way of pressing whether or not that is true or not. Another way of saying it is that the fear of man makes us all ten men and ten women. That's a reference to... Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, you have the tin man, right? He's hollow on the inside. Well, the fear of man makes us all hollow. It leaves us without conviction. It leaves us without any guiding principles, any governing reality that holds us together. And it helps us keep our integrity no matter who we're in front of or who we are around. And so you have this fear here that is present in them. And so they're conspiring, trying to find ways to go after the apostles. They want to put the apostles to death, but the apostles are standing firm. They're being who Jesus has called them to be. Verse 29. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles replied to the inquiry of the council. We must obey God rather than people. And that's the rub. They're saying, look. Our fear is the fear of the Lord. We're not afraid of people. God is the one that we must obey. You know that fear, that whatever you fear is what's going to control your life. Whatever you are afraid of, that's what's going to control the decisions that you make. It's going to control your actions and your reactions to situations and circumstances. So if you fear men, if you fear people, you're going you're to be double-minded. You're going to waffle. You're going to have many faces as you walk through this life. 
But if the only person you fear in this world is God, then you can just live with one face. You can live out one reality. You can be who he's called you to be no matter where you are or when you are in life or in the world. And so the apostles here are responding, look, we obey God rather than people. In fact, we must do that. He's the one that we fear. What you have here is an example of what's called civil disobedience, where the governing authorities are being disobeyed and defied by the apostles. It's a very similar situation to what goes down in the Old Testament with the apostles' heroes, the guys, guys by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Daniel chapter 3, you have a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's uh, ruler of the known world at that time, and he laid out a law, built a golden statue, and he commanded all the people in his kingdom to worship this statue when the music in the kingdom would play. Everyone was to bow down and pay homage and adore this image that he had carved and that he had built up. But there are three men who knew that that would dishonor God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He, they knew that this would be wrong, that this would be sinful. And so they had a choice to make when the music started playing, and the choice they made was to stand firm, and they refused to bow down before this golden statue. So Nebuchadnezzar took these three men and caused them to suffer by throwing them into a fiery furnace. But what's interesting about the moment is how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded to that moment. It says this. These three men replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, that's sovereign grace, right? If he does rescue us, fantastic. But even if he doesn't, that's not changing who we are. We're not governed by the fear of man. We're, not, we're governed by the fear of the Lord. These were men of conviction. These were men who had chests. They had a heart. There was a governing, guiding reality within them, and this is what they would hold to. So it says, so they said, even, but even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. That's humility. That's civil disobedience. That's recognizing sovereign grace. That's responding to the fear of the Lord. That is, those, are, those are men who are free from the tyranny of jealousy, free from the tyranny of fear. They are being who God had redeemed them to be. And this is where we find the hostility of the fear of man being ended in our own heart. When you and I get to the point where we fear the Lord and obey him and we're not fearing people and obeying them. Sometimes this will create tension as we live in a city like Seattle. Just because there is a law on the books, that doesn't mean that is a law that every Christian should observe. Just because there's a law that's not on the books, it doesn't mean that that is something that Christians should not observe. Civil disobedience means we fear the Lord, we don't feel pe fear people. It means whenever the law corresponds with the ethics and embodies the beauty of God's kingdom, we're all about it. But whenever the law denies the ethics of God's kingdom or disrupts the beauty of God's kingdom, that's when we defy it. That's when we choose not to obey it. That's when we live out the fear of the Lord and we don't succumb to the fear of man. John Stott would put it this way in a beautiful description of civil disobedience. He said, you know, the God-ordained purpose for the power they have been given, that is rulers and authorities, governments, city officials, that type of thing, 
The God-ordained purpose for that is to promote good and to punish evil. What shall we do then when they use it rather to punish good and promote evil? What should we do when the lines get twisted and the wires get crossed? Well, Stott would tell us we must resist. We must defy. He says, since the state's authority has been delegated to it by God, we are to submit to it right up to the point where obedience to the state would involve disobedience to God. At that point, it is, get this, our Christian duty to disobey the state in order to obey God. At that point, it is a Christian duty, not an option. It is a Christian duty to disobey the state in order to obey obey God. There are places in the world where the government has outlawed Christianity. Does that mean, as Christians, we don't go there and share the gospel? Are those governments promoting good as defined by the kingdom of God, or are those governments prohibiting good? The reason why Christians are willing to go to places that are considered off-limits, where Christianity and sharing the gospel is outlawed, the reason why we're able to do this and do it with a clear, clean conscience is because we fear the Lord. We don't fear man. It's because we recognize where our ultimate allegiance lies. And our ultimate allegiance always lies with the king and the kingdom of God. It never ultimately lies with any king or government or nation in this world. The apostles are setting that example for us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego set that example long before the apostles did in this moment. They are not controlled by the fear of man. They are living out their fear of the Lord. That's hostility number three. Uh, number two. Hostility number three, you pick up in verse 33. When they heard how Peter and the apostles responded, everybody got mad. And it says in verse 33 that they wanted to kill them. They wanted to put them to death right then and there. But then there was a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel is the kind of guy you want in office, right? This is the kind of guy you want ruling a city or ruling a government. If you're going to have a non-Christian in charge, this is the guy you want. Because this is a guy who's sober-minded. This is a guy who isn't overly emotional. This is a guy who has a long life of, of serving people so that he's garnered respect from people. This is a guy who knows history. It's always good for your leaders to know history. And so when he's dealing with this situation, he's drawing on historical examples And so he picks up on two. He said there were a couple of guys who had followers a lot like these apostles. He names them, but he also points out, yeah, after they died, all their followers scattered. They're not here. Their movements ended with the death of those leaders. And then he draws this analogy saying, look, if if these apostles, if if God is with them and if God is for them, then then their movement, movement will continue. You don't... But if, if God's not with them and God is not for them, you don't necessarily have to stop it. It'll stop itself. I mean, you think about all the suffering that the apostles endured. They endured a lot of suffering in it to advance the gospel in this world. Why would they do that unless what they were doing was of God, so to speak? But then he offers up this warning in verse 39. He says, he says, you may even be found fighting against God. This is the third hostility. The third hostility is quite simply pride. The epitome of pride is fighting against God. The epitome of pride is refusing to see the hand of God and what he is doing in the world. 
And they should be able to see the hand of God even in this very moment because Theodos and Judas the Galilean, when they died, they stayed dead, and that's why their followers scattered. But when Jesus died, he didn't stay dead, did he? Jesus died, but he resurrected from the grave, and these apostles were eyewitnesses of that. They saw the resurrected Jesus. They interacted with the resurrected Jesus. The resurrected Jesus became their worldview, became their fuel, became their energy. It's what drove them through the world to share the gospel and to endure suffering. They knew Jesus was alive. And since Jesus is alive, the movement of the gospel can't be stopped. This is what makes it of God, because God is the one who exalted Jesus to his right hand. He made Jesus ruler and savior to give repentance to his people and forgiveness of sins. God has done this, and so the gospel is going to keep moving. It's going to do its work in the world. The question is, is your pride going to prohibit you from seeing it? Is your pride going to prohibit you from being a part of it? Here you have those who are standing against God because they are opposing God's apostles. And there are people in the world today who are standing against God because they are opposing God's people in the church. When that happens, how does your heart respond? When people are standing against God's people in the church... And hostility is coming towards the church. How does your heart respond? Is it hardened by their pride? Or do you allow their pride to remind you of your own pride? To remember, there were moments in your life when you stood against God. There's been moments in your life, even as a Christian, when you've been on the wrong side of the equation. And you've needed to be reminded of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. And you need to be reminded of James chapter 4, verse 6. That God opposes, resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You need to be reminded, look, pride is not where the Christian belongs. The Christian belongs in humility. Because humility is where God's grace is found. It's in humility where God's gospel is, takes root. It takes root in humble soil. And so we see this and we hear this so that we can pray, God, when there is pride in us and we are resisting and standing against a movement of God in our lives or through our lives, that we would confess that, repent that, repent of it, and find ourselves being humbled by what God is doing and not hardened by what the world may be up to. So after this moment, when Gamaliel kind of gives this incredibly wise counsel, everybody there was persuaded and then verse 40, they call the apostles back in, but notice what happened to them. The apostles were flogged. They treated the apostles the same way Jesus was treated before he was crucified. Jesus, too, was flogged. But then notice verse 41. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. How do you do that? How do you smile after being flogged? Well, I believe this is evidence of the apostles' humility. This is evidence of the apostles' freedom. They're rejoicing in this moment because they have humble hearts. They're not being hardened by the sufferings that they've just experienced. Proud people don't rejoice when they suffer. Proud people don't rejoice when they are treated shamefully. Only humble people who recognize their connection to Jesus can do this. 
The reason why they're rejoicing in this moment is because they are aware of who their master is. And they know that as servants of Jesus, they are not greater than their master. This is exactly what Jesus would say in John chapter 15, verse 20. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. A humble person recognizes that when hostility is railed against the Christian for the sake of Christ, they don't say, well, this shouldn't be. This shouldn't happen. I'm somehow exempt from being treated in these, these poor ways. We do not say, you know, as servants, we are greater than Jesus. No, we recognize that a servant is, isn't greater than his master. So when the world responds to us the same way it responded to Jesus, we rejoice. We rejoice in humility, knowing that we are servants, not masters in the relationship with Jesus. So you want to find pride ended in your heart. Well, and you want to find humility growing in your heart. Well, you have to see yourself not as the master in your relationship with Christ. You are not the master of God. He is a God of sovereign grace. You are not to be mastered by people so that you're afraid of people. You are to be mastered by the Lord so that you fear the Lord. And you are not to stand against the purposes and the activity and the movement of God in your disobedience. No, you, you embrace the humility that says, I'm not a master in this relationship. I'm a servant. And a servant isn't greater than his or her master. And so the way hostility is ended in our hearts is by nurturing the humility of Christ. It's letting the gospel replace our envy, our fear, and our pride with humility. Recognizing that Jesus is Savior, we are servants. Recognizing that God is God and we are not it's affirming the fact that God is right in every moment of every day, of every decision, of every action. God is right, and he will do what's right in and through every circumstance or situation we find ourselves in. So how do you keep your heart from growing hardened in response to the sin and the suffering, the brokenness and the bewilderment of the world in which we live? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, For consider him, that is Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. In other words, remember that you are not greater than your master. Consider him who endured such hostility so that you don't grow weary and you don't give up, so that you aren't hardened out of your participation in the mission of God. So that you're not hardened out of the love that you should have for the people that surrounds you in this city. So that you are not hardened out of the respect you should show civil authorities. But yet sober-minded enough to recognize at times there will be distance between you and those civil authorities. Don't let your heart be hardened. Don't grow weary and give up. Consider Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself. Let's pray together.